For months now, we have said that the heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is union with Jesus Christ. What makes the gospel such good news isn't just that we can be regenerated by Jesus, but that he actually takes up residency in us. As Christians, we're not simply forgiven by Jesus. We are fused to him. We're not merely justified by Jesus. We are joined to him. Ephesians teaches us that for the Christian, Jesus doesn't just remain a savior outside of us. He becomes a savior very much inside of us as well. And while it's true that on the one hand, the most frequent way that we see this teaching in the book of Ephesians flagged is with those prepositions uh, in Christ and through Christ and with Christ. It's not the prepositions, but the pictures of our union with Christ that assist us more than anything else in understanding what this is about. So it's the portraits that are painted in Ephesians that lend a hand to the prepositions. In Christ, through Christ, with Christ, yeah, but what do you mean? Like, united to Jesus in what way? Joined to him how? Could you give me an image? And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we have no fewer than five of them. Now, you know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Exactly. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul unveils visual after visual to paint a portrait of the nature of our union as Christians with Christ. One of the world's leading scholars on the doctrine of union with Christ is a fellow named Constantine Campbell, who writes, Union with Christ is taught in prepositions, and while it's important to work through these prepositions with care, they do not exhaust our investigation. It would be a mistake to assume that because all prepositional language had been canvassed, that all thinking on union with Christ had also been dealt with. On the contrary, one of the most important ways in which our God expresses his thinking about union with Christ is through metaphors. And though I've quoted it several times now, it bears repeating. Uh, Ray Ortland Sr., now with the Lord, wrote in his 1980 study on union with Christ entitled Circle of Strength, he wrote this, We're in Christ the way a baby's in a womb, but better. We're in him the way a moth is in a chrysalis, but better. We're in him the way a deep-sea diver's in his diving suit, but better. We're in him the way that birds are in the air or fish are in the sea, but better. And then he turns and asks his readers, can you think of other comparisons of how Christians are in Christ? I love that, by the way. And if the Apostle Paul were listening, he'd raise his hand and say, oh, oh, I can. I can think of at least a half a dozen different ways. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul says, picture the church of Christ as a body and picture Christ as the head because our union with Jesus is vitally organic. Or in Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, imagine the church as residence in a kingdom and Christ as the king because our union with Jesus results in a heavenly citizenship. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, think of the church as bricks in a temple building and Jesus as the cornerstone because our union with Jesus 
is a holy reality. In Ephesians 4, to 24, Paul says, as you begin your walk with Jesus each morning, imagine yourself walking into your closet and putting off your old clothing and putting on Christ. Because just like getting dressed each day, union with Christ is a daily responsibility. So from a head and a body to citizens and their king, to the cornerstone and the rest of the temple, even to clothing on our body, Paul is possessed with the imagery and this teaching of union with Christ. He is possessed that we master the doctrine of union with Christ. In fact, I would say not so much to master it as be mastered by it and then to move out into the world ready to share this good news. So visuals and images and pictures, graphics, they are very important for us to begin to understand this. They're an important teaching tool. And because of this, Ephesians overflows with vivid descriptions of our union with Christ. Ephesians abounds with illustrations of our union with Jesus Christ. But the greatest of these is marriage. I'll say that again. Ephesians abounds with images of our union with Jesus Christ. But the greatest of these is marriage. And we said it several times so far in the worship gathering today, but Hebrews 13.4 commands the church, let marriage be held in honor among all. Among all. Everyone in the church, whether married or single, all of us. Why? Why cast the net so broadly? Because only the church truly celebrates and demonstrates and communicates what marriage is. Marriage is the lifelong drama of the eternal reality of Christ's unchanging love for his church. In other words, marriage is about the gospel. And the highest illustration that the word of God has for us of what it means to be savingly united to Jesus is marriage. So do single people today listening to this sermon have a stake in defining and discovering and defending a biblical definition of marriage. We could ask the question another way. Do single people have a responsibility to discover and define the definition of the gospel, of salvation itself? The answer, of course, is a strong yes. In fact, if you're with us today and you're not currently married, whether you're a younger individual not yet married or perhaps an individual engaged to be married or you've been widowed or divorced or you are happily single. If you're with us today and you're single, you have every bit a stake in this sermon, as a married person does. After all, a single man wrote this passage today, did he not? The Apostle Paul. And furthermore, the one who holds the key to the definition of marriage, namely Jesus, was single his entire life long. So single people, lend me your ears as much as anyone else here today. You can and must hold marriage in honor uniquely as a single person. So let marriage be held in honor among us all, especially husbands and wives. Especially husbands and wives. So first point today. Wives, your mission in marriage is strengthening submission to your husband. Wives, your mission in marriage is strengthening submission to your husband. 
Look with me, if you will, at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You may recall from last week that the fifth of five rapid-fire descriptions of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is found in verse 21. Even if you don't recall that, you could just look at verse 21 and see it. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then, interestingly, just for clarity's sake, English readers deserve to know this, that the Greek word for submit doesn't actually appear in verse 22. A literal translation of verses 21 into 22 would be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the word in our English translations is added in order to to smooth translation, but the point is clear even without it. And the argument's not difficult to follow. One example of submitting to one another in the life of God's people is wives to husbands. Verse 21 shows itself in verse 22. Next week, we'll see another example of verse 21 uh, displayed in chapter 6, verse 1, with children submit to parents. And then finally, in another two weeks' time, we'll look at the submitting to one another text worked out in terms of employees and employers in chapter 6, verse 5. So let's consider what this command means and why it's so significant and what it has to do with our union with Jesus Christ. So Once again, I'll just read these three verses. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The word submit is the command, and the context is is union with Christ. So first, the, the command, submit. What does it mean? As we said last week, it's the idea of arrange yourself under another, or to order oneself under another. And notice, it's a reflexive command. Wives are being addressed here. Husbands are not being addressed here to make sure their wives are submissive. It doesn't work that way. This is something wives are to do themselves, not have done to them. Husbands aren't addressed here. Wives are addressed to voluntarily submit themselves to their husbands. And why? Why ought a wife to arrange herself under or order herself under her husband? What Paul's assuming here that we must not assume in our culture is that his audience has a working knowledge of a biblical vision of womanhood. Not simply being a wife in Christ, but being a woman made in the image of God. Ephesians 1.27 reminds us that both men and women are made in the image of Almighty God, not simply married women. Marriage doesn't determine a person's gender. Womanhood, manhood, they transcend marriage, but they do flavor marriage. 
and womanhood flavors what a woman brings to marriage. So, for example, if we wanted to know a little bit more about what submit means, we might go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, where God says of Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, just a few brief comments about that verse. First, notice it is not good for man to be alone. I experience this every time my family goes out of town. It is not good for man to be alone. It's actually the first thing in all of creation that's not good according to God's judgment. Everything is good. Even the image of God is very good in the early movements of Genesis. But this is the first thing that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And secondly, woman is called a helper. And far from this being an assessment of her insignificance or inferiority or unimportance, even a surface-level study of Scripture would lead us in directly the opposite direction. The most frequent helper in the Bible is not a woman made in the image of God, but rather our God himself. Repeatedly through the pages of Holy Scripture, God is the helper of his people. So Psalm chapter 30, verse 10 says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 54, verse 4 says, Behold, the Lord, uh, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. My daughter was singing these verses yesterday at our kitchen table. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. In Hosea, chapter 13, verse 9, when Israel rejects the rescue of the Lord, the Lord goes toe-to-toe with his his people, and he says, you are against me, against your helper? And then finally, in the Gospel of John, no less than four times, Jesus uses the word helper. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know who he uses that word in, in context for. It's a description of the Holy Spirit. One example would suffice. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, if you press in on verse 16, you see something really interesting there. That's a Trinitarian statement. Second person of the Trinity is going to ask the first person of the Trinity something about the third person of the Trinity. And if the Son is asking the Father for another helper, who's the first helper? Christ, yeah. So do we not see that helper is to be engaging in a divine calling? It's one modeled by God himself. God is our helper. And so if woman is to be man's helper, then far from functioning in a trivial capacity, she is actually functioning in a critical capacity as an image bearer, an image displayer. Now, take that background knowledge and import it into today's text. Wives of Mount Evangelical Free Church, do you see how significant you are? When you submit yourself to your husband, you are arranging yourself under, you are ordering yourself under another who stands in need of your resources your capacities and abilities and faculties and powers and gifts 
and competencies. Submit, then, doesn't mean yield or hold back, or worse yet, uh, consignment to the B team or the junior varsity of the marriage, but rather it's a word that means to arrange under in order to support and to assist in a word to help, to bring strong support. Colossians 3.18, Paul writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now there, the doctrine of union with Christ is even more explicit. Submission to your husband is fitting in the Lord. It makes perfect sense when you're in Christ. When you're a wife, that your mission is a submission, a mission underneath your husband's mission. It isn't something you should do. It's something in Christ you were forgiven for doing. It is uh, in order to do. In Christ, it's not something that you have to do so much as you want to do and you get to do. And you have a spiritual family in the church that will seek to encourage and assist and resource you in doing. In addition, when you come underneath and seek to endorse your husband's leadership, you are showing the world, you are preaching the gospel to the world what it means to come underneath the leadership of Christ himself. Wives are a living drama of the gospel message. Why is that? Verse 23 says, plainly, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So we can preach the gospel from this text. Uh, If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, uh, one thing that you need to see and you should see from all of the married women in this church is that the gospel is not not a help wanted sign. It's a help available sign. You need help. You need grace and forgiveness and strength and wisdom. You need a helper. If you're with us today and you're not a believer, open yourself to Jesus. Open yourself to God, who is your helper, who provides grace and forgiveness and strength to you. So wives, your mission is a gospel mission. Your mission in marriage is the strengthening submission to your husband. A second point today. Of marriage be held in honor among all, especially husbands and wives. Husbands, your mission in marriage is sacrificial love toward your wife. Husbands, your mission in marriage is sacrificial love toward your wife. If a wife is to arrange herself under and provide strong help or support for her husband, who is her head, what sort of head is this? What sort of headship is she endorsing? In other words, what model of leadership ought a husband to embrace? The answer to that question is found in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, your mission in marriage, whether or not you choose to accept it, and I hope you will, is sacrificial love toward your wife. And that mission, that definition of leadership, is unlike any definition of leadership that you're likely to stumble across in the 21st century. In fact, it was just as strange and countercultural in the first century. Jesus outlined true manhood for his disciples in Matthew 20, 
starting in verse 25, when he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what's Christ's vision of leadership? It's it's clear. It's servant leadership. Loving, humble, others-centered, others-advancing, sacrificial leadership. That's the model for Christian husbands. And it's a rare breed today. Not many husbands fit this bill. And I think it's a fair question. We have to ask the question, why? Why is this such an unattractive picture for men today, even men in the church? Why be so interested in advancing the interests of another? Why abandon my own preferences or comfort or well-being for the preferences and comfort and well-being of another? And the answer to that question is simple. She's not another. You are one with her. She's one with you. And the question of why you would put your own needs and inclinations or ease or welfare above hers is backwards, actually. Husbands of Mount Evangelical Free Church, when you put your wives' concerns first, you are merely advancing your own. I think the reason that most husbands struggle so profoundly with selfishness and are so poor at sacrifice is we really don't see Paul's baseline argument here. It dawned on me Friday when I was working on this in a very fresh way. When you're married, your spouse becomes one with you. And so accordingly, Paul is appealing to husbands here simply out of a sense of reason. This isn't about benevolence so much as just plain logic. This is common sense. In Ephesians 5, 28 to 30, Paul writes, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Why would a husband ever, ever, ever ignore or defraud or cheat or lie to or abuse or divorce his wife? Why? He who loves his wife loves himself. He who hates his wife hates himself. And when guys begin to get this figured out, nothing will stop you from loving your wife because to do good to her is to do good to yourself. We can ask the question another way with a gospel sort of perspective here. If we are the bride of Christ, why is Christ so good to us? Why would Christ pour himself out for us, for another? You know why? Because as far as Christ is concerned, we're not another. We are members of his own body. Why else would he sanctify and cleanse and wash and seek to present us to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing? Why is Jesus so committed to making us holy and blameless because we are one? That's not just wonderful, that's practical. 
It's a practical outworking of the doctrine of union with Christ. It only makes sense if we are united to Jesus. So husbands, let's figure this out. Let's step up to the plate and swing here. If we want the community that we live among to see how Christ loves his own body, the practical application is how will you love your wife concretely this week as your own body? Do you provide for and protect her? Are you committed to her spiritual growth, to nourishing her, to cherishing her? To use the language of 1 Peter 3, do you seek to understand her? Do you pray for her? Do you pray with her? Do you wash her with the water of the word of God? And while Ephesians 5.33 does command wives to respect their husbands regardless... And if, you, however, if you if you ever wonder, you know, like Rodney Dangerfield, like where's your respect at home? Have you ever stopped to think how respectable you actually are? Give her something to respect. Love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave Himself up for her. Husbands, your mission in marriage is sacrificial love toward your wife. So Ephesians abounds. It abounds with images of our union with Jesus Christ. But the greatest of these is marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Wives, your mission in marriage is strengthening submission to your husband. Husbands, your mission in marriage is sacrificial love toward your wife. And isn't it true that we live, we live in a world and in a nation and in a culture that couldn't be more backward on this issue than it currently is. And, of course, that's dangerous to say because you know it's going to get more backward in the years ahead. Ours is not a world that is hospitable to the biblical definition of marriage because ours is not a world that is hospitable to the biblical definition of the gospel. But ironically, one of the greatest evangelistic devices we have in a culture so adrift from the gospel is the drama of the gospel that unfolds itself in every Christian marriage. So may marriage be held in honor among us all. May we encourage one another in the vows that we take. Let marriage be held in honor among us all. We must show the world the gospel with our marriages. The beauty of the gospel, its most vivid visual aid, is marriage in Christ. Next week, we'll take another step into the home with a look at parenting in Christ. Right now, let's pray.